always enjoyed it, but I'm, I'm thankful that he, um, he's allowing me to do this. And uh, he has uh, given me the opportunity to do another one of our character studies uh, that we had done. We've done a couple of them uh, while we were here. They've uh, been a great joy to me uh, personally uh, to have spent some time um, in my own study um, building a library of Christian biography. And I'm still doing that, still ongoing. Um, but uh, I love to study the great saints of God that have left such a great mark on the church. And uh, Brother Jay had given me a, um, a request, and I was thankful that the Lord honored it and allowed me to do it because I'm excited uh, to teach on our particular character today. And I believe it will be a blessing to you. I never deal with this particular individual, uh, but what I don't feel a burst of thankfulness and um, not only for what he did in his time, but for what he did in his time, meaning for us in our time. So I want you to take your Bible this morning, and uh, as we've done with every study, we've given you a verse, given you a text that sums up or defines the life of our character. Psalm 119 uh, will be where uh, we go for this particular individual's life and his ministry. Psalm 119. And we'll start our reading in verse number 6. We're going to read uh, that second little section um, there in Psalm 119, the whole section. And uh, we believe that this would be a defining text for our individual's life. Psalm 119, verse number 9. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. With my whole heart have I sought thee. O oh, let me not wander from thy commandments. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Blessed art thou, O Lord, teach me thy statutes. With my lips have I declared all the judgments of thy mouth. I have rejoiced in the way of thy testimonies as much as in all riches. I will meditate in thy precepts and have respect unto thy ways. I will delight myself in thy statutes. I will not forget thy word. Let's pray as we go into our class this morning. Brother Jay, won't you pray for me this morning? Amen. As we have looked and the times that I've been able to teach, we've been dealing with a particular theme which has been the faith of our fathers. And we looked at Martin Luther. That was a great joy. I always enjoy learning or teaching about him. And we would say that he had a pioneering faith. Uh, his place in church history was to be a bulldozer for truth. And then we also looked at... Um, who else did we look at? We looked at Martin Luther. And then we looked at... Um, he was a missionary. Brainerd. Looked at, didn't get very far in his life. Thank you for that. I had it earlier. Uh, David Brainerd, and we talked about his perplexing faith, how that as a missionary, giving himself over to God, he suffered greatly uh, for his place in church history. The man that we're looking at today, and I'm building up to him, uh, but uh, we would say he has a propagating faith. By that we mean his faith is one that declares truth, and by him we have, uh, we have found that truth is an integral part of his life. I call him the singer of one note, and that's the title of our... Uh, study this morning, the singer of one note. Let me give you some information about our text 
before we get into his life, to give a foundation uh, for the Word of God. Psalm 119 was written as an exaltation and magnification of the Word of God. It is an acrostic psalm meant for memorable purposes, teaching purposes. It's comprised of 22 stanzas representing the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. has eight verses to a stanza. Someone has said that the psalmist, as he writes, is like someone stitching a pattern, lovingly and carefully composing every thought and phrase as to make the most of, our, of their language to beautify the Word of God. It's the largest chapter in your Bible, made up of 176 verses. It's meant to be read with a hungry appetite. Meant to be read with a awestruck vision, like someone would mine for gold or jewel, or someone would forage for food. Meant to be an exciting endeavor when you read Psalm 119. It's the Bible in miniature, and it magnifies the glory and the wonder of the Word of God. The psalmist uses words like law, precept, statute, way, speaking of how that the Word of God is to dictate how the Christian should live, how the believer should design their life and orchestrate their decisions, also sharing with us that there's great blessing to be enjoyed by living a biblical life. And uh, it was also written at the time of, uh, of its composition against the backdrop of national profanity and apathy concerning the Word of God. The people were no longer enamored with the truth and they had started to live in complacency about the Word of God. And so the psalm was meant to remedy their spiritual sickness. Very important that this be understood as we go in to our character study this morning. The Reformation, that's something that I study, try to study extensively. You'll hear me talk about at length as well. The Reformation is regarded as the seminal moment of church history. When you look across the tapestry of church history, one of the most important pieces of that would be the Protestant Reformation. That's when God's people became inflamed about the truth. They became, uh, they became real Christians. They became uh, obsessed with the Bible because uh, the gospel had been unleashed on the world, not the gospel of Catholicism, of work and sacrament and baptism and church membership, but the gospel of justification by faith alone, founded solely in what they called sola fide, one of the five solas, that he, or sola scriptura rather, one of the five solas, the soul of the heart of the Reformation was the Word of God. And so every reformer at the heart was a preacher and a Bible teacher. You'll often hear words uh, in regard, or names in regard to the Reformation, like Martin Luther, we've mentioned him, John Calvin, John Knox. But I believe the name of our character today perhaps is lesser known in a tragic way, but he needs to be remembered and brought back because he is at the ground floor of the Reformation, and the work that he accomplished in his life uh, was pivotal to the Reformation. His name was William Tyndall. We get, our, uh, we get our title, the singer of one note, from an, uh, from an experience he had while he was exiled in Germany in 1531. The crown and the Catholic Church had sent an emissary named Stephen Vaughan to, uh, to find him and to capture him or to bring him back for trial. This never happened, but the man did spend time with Tyndall, and he had this to say about him, 
as he wrote a letter back to the crown. He said, I find him always singing one note. William Tyndall has been given several descriptions. He's been called the Apostle of England. He's been called the first Puritan. He's been called the father of the English Bible, the father of the English Reformation, and the father of the English language. These all describe him as a man who gave so much to the world spiritually, but linguistically as well. In fact, my favorite uh, designation for him is the man who gave God an English voice. We'll talk about how this happened and why it was so necessary as we get a little farther into the study. I like what Stephen Lawson said about him. He said, In an hour marked with great spiritual darkness, and at the cost of his own life, Tyndall courageously gave the English-speaking world a Bible they could read and understand. He ignited the flame that would banish the spiritual darkness in England. Tyndall's translation of the Scriptures unveiled the divine light of biblical truth that would shine across the English-speaking world ushering in the dawning of a new day. That is to say, he helped give the English world a pure translation of the Bible in their native tongue. It's not the first to attempt this or to work towards this end. There was John Wycliffe. You'll often hear of the Wycliffe translation of the Bible. He had done much work, but had only been able to do just snippets and parts of the Scripture. There were also the Lollards involved with Wycliffe, who had been greatly persecuted for their desire to print and to publish the Bible. So it had not been done in a large way until Tyndall came. His one note we're talking about was the resounding chorus of getting back to the Word of God. It's as simple yet as profound as that. Getting back to the Scriptures. Is that not how it should be for us as we live the Christian life? Not so much that we care about the opinions or philosophies of men, but we get back to the Bible. That would have been William Tyndall's one note. He had committed his life to a singular endeavor which would both define him as a servant of God and alienate him as an enemy of the political and religious world of his day. I call him an outlaw for the Bible. Warren Wiersbe has said we're walking among giants. And I would say as we look at William Tyndall, he stands head and shoulders above many others. I'd say this as well. What we enjoy today and proclaim is that which we have heard from the beginning, that which was formulated in the heart of God, illustrated and patterned by the patriarchs and prophets, paid for and certified by the Son, inspired in hearts by the Holy Spirit and carried like life-giving water from hand to hand and mouth to mouth until now. God's work of redemption was fulfilled at Calvary, revealed in the Scripture by the inspiration of the Spirit, but it has and is still being carried to sinners through various voices of the gospel through church history. In fact, if you're saved this morning, it's because somebody carried it to you, but it had been given to them before. And we need to remember men like this. And so it's with great joy uh, that I give you just an overview. I can't get very deep. I'd love to, but I can only give you an overview of the life of William Tyndall and trust that it be a great delight to your heart. Number one, I'd like to speak about Tyndall's beginnings. So we start any story, any, any biography, we need to start at the start. And a verse that I believe would summarize his beginning, his foundational life would be, 
uh, here in our text. Verse 9, Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word, with my whole heart have I sought thee, O let me not wander from my commandments. This is a word of encouragement and of exhortation to the young people concerning the word of God. David writes, Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? It's one of my favorite verses in all of the Bible. That word way in the text speaks of a rutted, muddy place or a ditch where a wheel has continually passed over, so much so that the weight has dug a rut there, and it's dirty, and it's trash-filled. And so what David is referring to is the mind. How shall a young man cleanse the, the wheel treads that have gone through his mind with every thought that he's had, uh, both pure and impure, the, the way that, that uh, uh, different things and imaginations have rutted up his mind. How are we going to cleanse that? And any of us could agree this morning that most definitely immoral thoughts like to hang in the mind like a rutted road. But I'm thankful that we're given the remedy for that very problem. He said the way for us to do that is to take heed according to the Word. That means more than read it. That means live it and apply it to your life. Here is the the commitment of the young man. With my whole heart, if this be true, if I can cleanse this dirty mind, with my whole heart have I sought thee, O let me not wander from my commandments. The psalmist declared that he would guard and guide his mind by the Word of God. And as a young man, I would say that it is a similar situation in how he became obsessed with the Bible, totally saturated with Scripture, and it formed the rest of his life. Notice the context of his early life. Tyndall's birth date is not known specifically, but most would put it around 1493 came from a family of respectable farmers in Gloucestershire, England. He's born to a people whose entire life is to dig and to glean and to get the yield of the ground. And so it would be that same mentality that would carry him through his life, not digging in the dirt for for fruit and for vegetable, but digging in the Word for the wonderful gems of truth. Context of his life is he entered a time of social, political and religious darkness. They're called the Dark Ages, the medieval times, for a reason. The Tudors of England were in power. The Roman Catholic Church was the major religious system with virtually everyone in the known world subscribing to its teaching and influence. Just three years before his birth, the church had ordered the Spanish Inquisition, which had gripped the world in great persecution against those who defied the church. Tyndall would be baptized into the Catholic Church as an infant and would even go on to the priesthood. But he would later openly renounce this decision. There was a world-reaching hold of ignorance and darkness over the world and it was a famine of the Word of God. The priests and the teachers of the day led their parishes with the agenda to please the Pope and to uphold the status quo of the church But most were guilty of immorality and indecency. Most priests who were given the charge to teach the Bible were not even literate of the Bible they read. Some not even knowing the first phrases in the Lord's Prayer. 
They read passages and homilies from the Latin, which was the high church language, but not known by the common man. They read what was only prescribed by the Pope and the bishops, and the common hearer would be blind to understanding the true meaning of the Scripture. You understand that the problem is that unworthy immoral men were putting their own slant on truth and having it so locked up to their own understanding that it caused widespread ignorance. We have a Bible in English, but that does not mean that is not still happening today. It is the responsibility of a God-called and ordained preacher and a teacher to not only read the Scripture, but to give the proper meaning of the Scripture. But for the common person, it is very easy, dangerously easy, for a preacher to take the Word of God and slant it to fit his own agenda. So it is still a problem. Do not think that it is not. A cap- it would have been a capital offense to even attempt to translate the Scriptures from Latin into a person's mother tongue. It would be this famine of truth that would spur the ministry of William Tyndall. Notice the construct of his educational life. We've seen the context of his early life. Notice the construct. I, I cannot help, but with each of these studies that I've done, notice Romans eight twenty eight just comes to life. It is that to all things are working together for good and to the glory of God for those who love the Lord, those who are called according to His purpose. Uh, before we were formed in the belly, God had called us. He had designed for our lives those things that would be. He is sovereign. He is providential. He saw our substance yet unformed. Yet before our time, His plan and provision was already in place. Nothing takes place in our life without divine purpose. Such is true for William Tyndall. At age 12, because he came from a moderately wealthy family, he was able to enter a preparatory school connected to the University of Oxford, and it would be there that God would give to him a love for language and for the words that he read from philosophers and theologians and others that taught. He was skilled in arithmetic, music, logic, and philosophy. He went on to study at the University of Oxford, graduated in 1512, with a bachelor's degree and a master's degree in 1515. He would have learned from the foremost minds of his day. You're going to notice, and especially towards the end of his life, there's a trend that just seems to parallel with the Apostle Paul. Paul was, I believe, probably one of the greatest minds that has ever lived, even to this day. A genius concerning all manner of learning and education. We shouldn't knock education. Is it necessary to serve God? Oh no, God will use the ignorant. He'll use the unlearned. He'll use those who are not wise in the ways of the world. But we shouldn't knock those who God has purposefully given a mind to teach and to lead others in truth. And God had done this for him ere before he even knew God. Isn't it amazing? So notice the construct of his educational life and then notice the conversion unto eternal life. It's my favorite part of reading any of their stories. During Tyndall's education, he came under the influence of two important men who would lead him to a place where conviction would fall, the gospel would become a reality, and he would be saved by the grace of God. One such man, probably who did not uh, see himself as such an influence, was the Dutch humanist theologian Erasmus. 
The reason he is such an influence is because as Tyndall was in his studies, he would have sat under Erasmus. And at this time, he was compiling a Greek translation of the New Testament. For really, for more humanistic reasons, scholastic reasons, than for spiritual, but yet Tyndall would have been affected by hearing Erasmus teach from this Greek translation or hear him discussing it. And so he became interested in the Bible. First, as a, as a totally historic book. And he begins to grow in his reading. He was given all this language and knowledge, begins to read. And then another man comes in. We've already heard from him. His name is Martin Luther. He begins to preach in Germany justification by faith, preaching against the penance, preaching against the, uh, the sacraments in their, in their improper places, preaching against the Pope, preaching against false teaching. And this begins to wade into England by men such as Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley who were meeting in a, in a meeting house to discuss these doctrinal ideas. And it's believed that it, while at school, under the influence of this Greek New Testament and also the biblical theological interest he was hearing, one day Tyndall reads from 1 John that says, We love him because he first loved us. This was his text that melted his heart. He was born again. He totally renounced his Catholic background and his educational goals in favor of bringing this Bible that had changed his life to the common man. Here's his salvation testimony. I am the heir of heaven by grace and Christ purchasing. If that's all you can say about what it means to be saved, you have a wonderful salvation testimony. So that is his beginnings. Notice number two, his burden, Tyndall's burden. The psalmist said, Thy word have I hid in my heart. That means to, to have it impressed in the depth of who you are. Not just that you are hearing it, but that you are totally living it. The Bible becomes your being, that I might not sin against thee. Blessed art thou, O Lord, teach me. Whenever we have gone from knowing the first things of the gospel, it is the work of sanctification to teach us and to grow us. I love this story from Tyndall's life, one of the more well-known accounts. When you go to study his life, it'll be one of the first you read. He was uh, having dinner one night in a hotel next to a Catholic scholar. And while in conversation, the scholar made this statement, we had better be without God's law than the Pope's. This incensed Tyndall, who replied, I defy the Pope and all his laws. If God spare my life, ere many years, I will cause a boy that drives the plow to know more of Scripture than does the Pope. I pray that the common laborer can, sit, can sing it while he sows his seed, that the weaver may wobble it while he sits at his shuttle, that the traveler may be able to hum it and be lifted from his weary journey. The gospel made a difference in Tyndall's life. It set a fire. In his heart, and just like any true wildfire, it cannot stay where it is. He became incensed and obsessed with not only the Scripture, but the injustice he saw against it. He said this, it, is, it was impossible to establish the lay people, that is to give the common Christian a, a guideline for life. It is impossible to establish the lay people in any truth except the Scripture were laid before their eyes in their mother tongue. No middleman 
We do know, Scripture is clear, that the Bible is not a private interpretation. That means it isn't your Bible and my Bible. It isn't your truth and my truth. That is, the Word of God says what it says without apology and without argument, without debate. But yet there is need. God has given Ephesians 4. He has given us apostles and pastors and teachers and all the like that we might know the Scripture. And There's no middleman, no, no drunken priest at the pulpit teaching his slanted ideas. It is now that he has desired the common man have a Bible, that he might know God in a personal way. John Fox, who wrote Fox's book of martyrs, said of Tyndall that he was singularly addicted. I love that. Singularly addicted to the Bible. You know what addiction looks like. You have seen it perhaps in your life or in the life of another. will do all manner of anything for the fix, for the addiction. Go to any length, pay any money, take anything. Well, in a spiritual, divine, holy sense, it ought to be there is no ground we're not willing to cross. No place we're not willing to go, no price we're not willing to pay that we have truth. That we have truth, that our children have truth. And that our people have truth. His connection to Scripture was not a shallow means of keeping up an image. He didn't want the spotlight. If anything, he wanted to put the spotlight on the Bible. And it drove him to joyfully yet painfully declare this Bible to anyone and everyone. And it finally set him aside and alienated him from the lost world, but it gave him a place in the Christian's heart. I'd say three things about his burden. He was burdened, number one, by the perversions of the institution around him. Once he became converted, he became an itinerant preacher. He began, he began to preach this new revelation of the gospel and love for Christ to anyone who would listen. There at school, there around his home, there in town. It's made him a troublemaker. Marked him as a problem. Yet, Tyndall fearlessly stood against what he saw as the major crimes of, of the religious institution. The church had taught that salvation was not a sure thing. It couldn't come by simple faith, by grace. It had to be earned by works and sacraments. Instead of leading men and women into the knowledge of God, the church was more interested in fleecing the flock and monopolized the Bible to hold them captive. He watched as the priesthood was plagued by illiteracy and knowing that these men were to be there to watch men's souls, he said and said, they watch like a fox watches the geese. The church could not, here's the truth, the church could not let the Bible be declared in native language because once the people read it for themselves and understood, their empire would be shaken and destroyed. And that's what happened. He was burdened not only by this, uh, this perversion of the institution but by the problem of ignorance amongst his own people. We agree that he is right in his condemnation of the church but how many of us should be not only burdened about what's being taught in churches, but what people are believing in the way that they are living? This Bible is alive. Tyndall believed it. I seem to remember D.L. Moody one day was preaching on the street and he put a Bible on the ground and he covered it with his hat and he began to dance around it and say, Be careful, be aware, it's alive. And someone said, What is it? He removed his hat and it was a Bible. <laughs> it's alive. Caution, danger. Don't play with fire. It's a living book. Tyndall believed this and desired that it be real in his people's life. 
He would have agreed with Paul. Woe is me if I preach not the gospel. He was burdened by the purpose of instruction. He wanted to teach. He wanted men to understand. He wanted them to enjoy the life of salvation that he knew. And that is true for anyone that's saved. Number three is battles. With my lips have I declared all the judgments of thy mouth. I spent some time last year preaching through Amos. And there was a situation in Amos's life when he was called to the floor by the religious leaders of his day in Israel. And he was scolded, really scolded, for crossing the line. This country preacher had come to town, began preaching the truth of the wrath and judgment of God. And those in power in the day couldn't stand to hear it. And so he was put down. He didn't defend himself either. He just said that God had called him. And he had no option but to obey the Lord. That led me to this statement. There is a high price for truth. What joins us here divides us out there. That isn't that we go with a divisive spirit or a pride or an arrogance or an anger or a self-righteousness. You don't have to leave the world. They will leave you. But too many are more concerned with what others think or their position in society. And they fear men rather than fearing God. Thank God Tyndall, he feared God. And it caused him, I think Vance Havner said, when you've stood before the potentate leaders and um, those in power look like small potatoes. True for Tyndall. Here's his encouragement if you suffer for your faith. Christ is with us until the world's end. Let his little flock be bold, therefore. For if God be on our side, what matter maketh it who be against us, be they bishops, cardinals, popes, or whatsoever names they will. He struggled, but it was a worthy battle. Number one, he struggled with his afflicting problems. When he began his work to translate and print his English Bible, he was met at the start and throughout with rejection and threat of punishment, of imprisonment, and of death. He knew that if the work could, was to continue, it couldn't happen in his native home of England, so he sacrificed his comfort and his position, and he left to travel. And he traveled the rest of his life. He was on the run in exile for the rest of his life, stopping here, stopping there, continually on the run, often would have to run in the night from those who were pursuing him. He said this, The preaching of God's word is hateful and contrary unto them. Why? For it is impossible to preach Christ except thou preach against Antichrist. That is to say, them which their false doctrine and violence of sword enforce to quench the true doctrine of Christ. He was shadowed by allied persecution. This perhaps harder than any struggles he went through. He got the continual news that those who were being affected by his Bible and converted under his ministry were being imprisoned and martyred. Can you imagine knowing that God has called you to a work that would lead to a life of constant personal danger as well as sure death for those who were involved with you? Without God's grace, I could not imagine it would be bearable. Give you a few names. Sometimes when I do, have done these studies or done them at home, the unsung hero becomes even more important to me than maybe even the one I'm studying. They, they become more of a focus. Maybe one of these days I'll, I'll just do unsung heroes. They deserve to be remembered. One such man, John Frith, 
who was a friend of Tyndall, found to be loyal to the cause, was tried by Thomas More, burned at the stake. Tyndall wrote to him this verse from 1 Peter 2.21, For even hereunto we are called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. Richard Bayfield was the captain of a ship smuggling his Bibles. He was arrested, tried, and condemned to burn at the stake. John Tewksbury was reading a Tyndall translation, fell under conviction, got saved, and then went to share his news. And when they found out, he was arrested, tried, sent to be whipped, tortured by rope, squeezing his head until his eyes fell from their sockets, left on a rack for three days, burned at the stake as well. Walk outside, if you would, this afternoon and say, Thank God I'm saved. And think about what it would be if someone caught it and that led to your death. This was reality. John Buchanan, he's one of my favorites. I'd like to meet him when I get to heaven. He had a copy of the translation of Tyndall, held it up during a Catholic Mass. (laughs) And he shouted out, let's get back to the Word. Within hours, the mob of the church had taken him out and burned him. An unnamed man was caught by the authorities. He was holding a page, just one page, of this translation. It contained the Lord's Prayer. And he was burned alive. He was suddenly ambushed into prison. 1535, Tyndall was befriended by a man who would be an enemy named Henry Phillips. He showed an interest in Tyndall's work. And Tyndall was known to be exceedingly friendly, perhaps to his detriment. One night they were having dinner. They were headed to, through a narrow alleyway to a, uh, the home of one of Tyndall's patrons, Thomas Points. The alley was so narrow that Tyndall, in his kindness, he allowed Phillips to walk ahead. And at that moment, Phillips pointed, just like Judas, pointed at Tyndall. There was a group of armed soldiers there to arrest him. He was taken to Vilvord Castle in Brussels, Germany. And he would stay there until his trial and execution. Again, parallel with Paul. Notice how he writes to the commissary, the lord of the prison, in the wintertime. He said, I beg your lordship and that of the Lord Jesus that if I am to remain here through the winter, you will request request the commissary to have the kindness to send me from the goods of mine which he has a warmer cap. For I suffer greatly from cold in the head and am afflicted by perpetual catarrh or nasal inflammation, which is much increased in the cell. A warmer coat also for this which I have is very thin piece of cloth, too, to patch my leggings. My overcoat is worn out. My shirts are also worn out. He has a woolen shirt if he will be good enough to send it. I have also with him leggings of thicker cloth to put on above. He has also warmer nightcaps. And I ask to be allowed to have a lamp in the evening. It is indeed wearisome sitting alone in the dark. But most of all, I beg and beseech your clemency to be urgent with the commissary that he will kindly permit me to the Hebrew Bible Hebrew grammar and Hebrew dictionary, that I may pass the time in the study. In return, may may you obtain what you desire, so only that it be for the salvation of your soul. While he was in prison, he continued to work. And it said that while he was working, many of the guards and workers were saved as they heard him preach the gospel. He wasn't locked up with them. They were locked up with him. Here are some of the charges at his trial. And I could only hope they could be against my life. He maintains that justification by faith alone is the only means of salvation. He maintains that the gift of God's grace offered in the gospel is enough for salvation. He maintains that there is no credence in prayers offered to Mary or the saints. 
He said, if they shall burn me, they shall do none other thing than I look for. There is none other way into the kingdom of God than through persecution and suffering of pain and a very death after the example of Christ. Now, let me finish by looking number four at Tyndall's Bible. Solomon said, I have rejoiced in the way of thy testimony. When the last time you said, I enjoy this Bible as much as in all riches. Give me every bit of money the world has and I'll take my Bible. I will meditate. That means to pour, to ruminate in the precepts and have respect unto thy ways. I will delight myself in thy statues. I will not forget thy word. Some men die. Their legacies are etched upon stone monuments. But Tyndall's legacy was not held to one area or site or statue. In fact, I'm reading a large portion of his legacy, and you are too. The faithfulness of his work. 1526, he finished his English translation of the Greek New Testament while in Germany. It was printed by friends on a newly invented press, smuggled into England in bales of hay, sheaves of cloth, and various other ways. On one occasion, I love this, the Archbishop of Canterbury devised a way to keep the New Testament from being spread. He bought them all. But this only financed Tyndall's next revision and produced an even better translation than the first. Constant threats of capture and imprisonment notwithstanding, Tyndall produced an English translation including the Pentateuch, Joshua, to Second Chronicles, and Jonah before his death. I love what he said about his system for translation. He said, I call God to record against the day we shall appear before our Lord Jesus that I never altered one syllable of God's word against my conscience, nor would I do this day if all that is in earth, whether it be honor, pleasure, or riches, might be given me. That's the faithfulness of his work. Notice the fruitfulness of his work. We owe William Tyndall our thanks for the bulk of our English Bible, which he translated and was used by the translators during the time of King James I. When King James commissioned a group of scholars to produce the 1611 version, they reached back to Tyndall's Bible, and roughly 85% of his translation was used in compiling the King James Version. Right now, in your lap you're holding 85% of Tyndall's work. He not only translated the Bible into comprehensible language, but by the leading of God, he coined phrases that had never before been seen in any other translation. These were original with him as he sought to best explain the original intent of the text. Here are a few examples. Let there be light. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face to shine upon thee. And be merciful unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon me and give thee peace. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The signs of the times. He went out and wept bitterly. For in him we live and move and have our being. Fight the good fight of faith. On October, October the 6th, 1536, William Tyndall was carried from... Vilford Castle into the court square, tied to a stake, strangled to death, burned, and had his remains exploded by gunpowder. What were his final words? Lord, open the king's eyes. Though they silenced Tyndall, didn't silence the Bible. 1557, his translation led to the production of the Geneva Bible. That's what the pilgrims carried into the new land. Tyndall's prayer was answered when in 1611, James I commissioned the publication of the well-known King James Bible. 
May God make us like Kendall. And love this book. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this opportunity to share yet another story that is of a man, but glorifies and magnifies your sovereignty, your grace, and your providence in this world. I pray, Father, the word of God would have free course and be glorified in this church today in song and prayer and preaching. May it also be free to reign in our lives each and every day that we wake. Pray, Lord, we would bow to this scripture and that it would be the greatest joy of our heart to pursue you in the word of God. Father, I pray if there be one here today that the word has never shined in them to produce life and light, that today would be the day that salvation comes. Thank you for your word. Thank you for those that have preserved it. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that has illuminated it. And we give you all the glory for what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.